0: This is a Blast Box Media podcast. The episodes in this feed were originally published on Crawlspace. Please use caution while listening and follow Crawlspace Podcast for more. she weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes.
1: If you have any information regarding Mora's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray Family, through their Facebook page, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit.
0: This is Missing Mora Murray. Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I'm Tim here today with Lance. How are you today, Lance? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm doing well. And uh, this episode, Lance, is not your typical Maura Murray episode. And if you listen to part one of this, you'll understand already what I'm talking about. This is part two of our conversation with Bill Thomas, whose sister, Kathleen Thomas, was murdered in 1986 on the Colonial Parkway. And so this case is called the Colonial Parkway Murders, and Bill Thomas has been an advocate for his sister's case, not to mention a lot of other families who are possibly ensnared by the same killer.
1: And Tim, I think it's fine for us to deviate a little bit from Moore's case, because at some point, I don't even know if we specifically put our finger on it, but we recognize that we have a... a a substantial listenership, a, a, a big base, and if we can raise more awareness for other cases, such as Bill's sister, the Colonial Parkway murders, or even, you know, the MVAC, it's something that we, we have a responsibility to do, and it's all within the same genre, and I hope people understand why we sometimes will have to deviate from Moore's case specifically.
0: And with that said, check us out at CrimeCon. Are you going to CrimeCon? We are. We're going to be there. So use code CRAWLSPACE19 on CrimeCon's website, crimecon.com. You'll get 10% off when you use code CRAWLSPACE19. If you're one of those last-minute bookers, there is still time to do so. Get your butt to New Orleans and CrimeCon.
1: And Tim, we will be remiss if we do not mention our Patreon page. There's a lot of fun stuff over there, a lot of informative stuff. We talk about some current true crime cases, and we have a very unique method of being more interactive with our listeners over there. So it'd be really cool if uh, you're not subscribed to our Patreon page. Go over there and do that as soon as possible.
0: Check it out at patreon.com slash crawlspace podcast. You get some weekly content, true crime news, and behind-the-scenes stuff. It's a lot of fun also though Lance we need to mention Stitcher Premium so check it out at stitcherpremium.com because you'll get our entire archive of both of these shows Crawl Space and Missing Mora Murray they're all available on Stitcher Premium $4.99 a month use code MMM for a free month and you won't regret it Stitcher Premium's great it's got a lot of great stuff on there yeah, and our creator
1: commentary I feel like they're really catching on we've been getting a lot of messages saying that uh, they're really fun to listen to they're informative it's fun to hear us give ourselves from the past a bit of grief and also if you're if you have a question about the case or if you want to catch up with the case you can literally pick any one of those episodes and get some current information that's going right along concurrently with the
0: uh, old episode Okay, and make sure to follow both of these shows. If you're listening to this on only one of these shows, Crawl Space or Missing More Murray, make sure to uh, subscribe to the other one. It'll, uh, it'll do you good. And go ahead and uh, follow Bill Thomas. He's at BillThomas56
1: on Twitter, and he has daily updates on the case and anything having to do with that particular subject matter.
0: So thanks a lot for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. So, Bill, in our research for this case, uh, we noticed that uh, that you appear in a lot of the videos, some of the documentaries. Your name is in a lot of the articles about this case, and just want to congratulate you for for getting the case out there as far as you have. I think that's really admirable.
2: <laughs> well, thank you. I'm just a stubborn Irishman that won't let go once I I, I get my teeth into something expression dog with a bone comes to mind.
1: I also want to say that we're pretty humbled on on this end to have you even come in here to speak with us about it because of how how prolific you are. It's like having the authority on something right in front of you. It's it's very humbling.
2: Well, thanks. I mean, I, I've been following what you guys have been doing for a number of years, particularly after my girlfriend Pamela and I saw the Maura Murray uh, television series, and then that I, I graduated from the University of Massachusetts, so... I'd been following that case a bit, and then when I had a chance to, uh, we had a chance to watch you guys on television, um, and, you know, the work that you did on that show was so interesting. I was very excited then when we had the opportunity to actually meet, you know, face-to-face um, at the recent ASOC conference, and... Um, We don't live too far away, so I thought, let's jump in the Mini Cooper and head on over there and actually do this face-to-face.
1: It was a little weird that you charged us for the autograph, so...
2: Well, you know, you got to cover gas costs. The mini's great on gas, but there's still expenses. It's still expenses, yeah. And that's you true. You got that, you know that they hit me up for I don't know a dollar or two on the Mass Pike, and especially since we
1: were giving you our autographs, well, it was even
2: weirder that we paid you for. That. Yeah, I thought that was strange, but gracious, you guys were very kind. Well, to to give me fi- your autograph plus five dollars for taking it, I thought was really. Nice and a little unusual. I think you might want to reverse that model at CrimeCon.
1: We zig and zag here at Crawlspace. You never
0: know what we're going to, what we're going to do. So uh, how did you get as involved in this case as you are?
2: Well, of course, you know, I'm uh, as Kathy's brother, one of three older brothers, um, I was involved in the case right from the beginning because of, you know, losing our, our younger sister and, and only girl and... And and following the case, but I really got much more involved. I guess it's coming up on 10 years ago. My recollection is that in the fall of 2009, I was in my office in Los Angeles. I I was then the executive director for AFTRA, the performers union. And it's one of those deals where, you know, the executive director, you get to be the boss. And with that means a lot of long hours. And what would typically happen is that the staff would head for the door sometime between 5 and 7, let's say. And it got to be, I don't know, 7, 7.30 at night, something like that. And I would stay late to get my work done. And it was a few weeks before the 23rd anniversary of Kathy's death. And so she was very much on my mind. I mean, I think about Kathy every day. But um, something about the anniversary just kind of resonated with me. And so I'm sitting there looking out at the... Hollywood sign in the distance, and it's starting to get dark, and the lights of Los Angeles are starting to come up. And I just, just sort of on a whim, I just turned to my computer and I Googled Colonial Parkway murders, obviously a case I was very familiar with. And then that, remember, I mentioned that whole stubborn Irish thing, Irishman thing. I, I, a whole series of stories came up, you know, in sequence as they do in the search engine. And I don't know what took over, but I then proceeded to read every single story from beginning to end, whether I'd read it before or not. There were a bunch of stories that I'd seen before and then a bunch of new stuff. And I just started reading. So between 7.30 p.m. and midnight, I started reading every story I found in the Google search engine, whether I'd read the story before or not. And so I just, I don't know, just... I just sort of just started reading. And so I read every story from top to bottom. And then I, and then I read the next one and the next one and the next one. So for those four or five hours, that's all I did. And somewhere in the course of that evening, I stumbled upon uh, the next link, which was to a YouTube link and contained. There was a video, which was from a local news broadcast, WTKR, the CBS affiliate Um, In Norfolk, that area of Virginia, and it was a lengthy story all about how the FBI had lost control of 78 highly graphic crime scene photos from the Colonial Parkway murders, which would have included my sister, Kathy Thomas, Rebecca Dowski and the other six victims. And the story was really quite shocking. First of all, I, I worked in film and TV, and I knew this was an exceptionally long story from a length perspective. You know, real estate is important to local news. How many minutes? Sure. So they did this long, long story. And I was shocked because the story said that the FBI had lost control of these crime scene photos, and they were out in the public. And these were graphic, graphic, you know, crime scene photos and that sort of thing and I couldn't believe they were out in the public and then my next thought was why don't we know about this? Nobody from the FBI called my my family. Nobody told us about this. Why don't we know about this? And then I was mystified because it didn't, the story on YouTube, it shows you when a story was put up. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say when the content was created so it wasn't clear right away when had this happened but I was really angry and so I kept looking. And then I ended up jumping over to the WTKR, the CBS affiliate, their website. And I found the story. And as it turns out, it had run about two weeks before. So a little bit earlier in September. So this story had broken in Virginia media and a local uh, retired deputy sheriff had supposedly come across these crime scene photos out in public and being used at a training academy for private investigators. And I just thought this was outrageous. And these are like horrific crime scene photos from the Colonial Parkway Murders, which is an unsolved case. I just couldn't believe it. And so while I'm there at the WTKR website, I found another story, also very long, like five minutes long, which is very long for local news. Same reporter. Same reporter. Same spokesperson, a guy named Brian Hanlon, a special uh, assistant special agent in charge, FBI agent um, from the Norfolk office, and you know I've been in film and television, as I mentioned, one of the things was pretty clear watching the two, these two stories that there was some sort of quid pro quo, in other words, some sort of deal made. The first story was very negative about the FBI and losing control of the crime scene photos. And this guy, Brian Hanlon from the FBI, I actually felt kind of bad for him. He looked so uncomfortable. And the FBI, for, for your listeners, they don't actually appear on camera very often in real life, and they do not speak on camera, on the record like this very often at all, unless it's a press conference announcing an arrest, you know, that kind of thing. And then the second story was kind of the, where do we go from here? And you could, Brian Hanlon was back on, and you could see he was trying to position, you know, we're really sorry about the crime scene photos leaking, and we're going to make this right, and we're going to, you know, make things better on a going forward basis. But I was infuriated and really upset. So as I continued to make my way through my internet search, I then came across a Facebook page that was called Whatever Happened to Richard Keith Call and Cassandra Haley, which is a mouthful, but I was really surprised. Remember, this is almost 10 years ago now. This was a Facebook page run by the Call and Haley families, and they were... um, the family members of one of the other, or excuse me, two of the other victims, uh, Keith Call and Cassandra Haley, in the Colonial Parkway murder. So I knew of them, but I'd never spoken with them. So I I saw this uh, Facebook page, and then so I read a bunch of the comments there, and people were very upset about the crime scene photo story and other things. And then I, you know, I continued on my way. And then at some point when it got really late and I was really tired and hungry and kind of, Still very upset about the crime scene photo story. I did something I'd never done before, which is I reached out to one of the other Colonial Parkway murders families. Now, these four double homicides, I'd never met or spoken to any of the other families, including even Rebecca Dowski's family. She's my sister's girlfriend, um, whom we had not yet met at the time of their murders. They've been seeing each other for a few months. We were going to meet. Becky that Thanksgiving. And of course, they died uh, October 9th, 1986. And so Thanksgiving never took place. So I'd never spoken to any of these other families. So I just made a decision kind of late that night. I, I wrote something which I've now written hundreds of times since, which is something along the lines of, my name is Bill Thomas. I'm the brother of Kathy Thomas, who together with her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski were the first two victims in the Colonial Parkway murders. Um, and, you know, I kind of, by way of introduction, I introduced myself to the Call family. But I'd never, ever spoken to these people before. And I didn't know how they would respond. My family had been very private about the Parkway murders. We'd never spoken publicly about my sister's death. Never done a single interview. My parents refused to, they, they spoke to one reporter one time for our hometown newspaper, The Lowell Sun, up in Massachusetts, and then never spoke to a single media person ever again despite many requests. And I'd never spoken to anybody except my you know, friends and family about losing Kathy. So I wasn't sure how well this was going to go over, but I thought, you know, might as well try. So I wrote them the me- private message, and then I found out later, a couple of days later, I, when I heard from the Call family that Chris Call, uh, brother of, of Keith, and uh, his sister began a, converse, a private conversation and Joyce Call, their older sister, and Chris were back and forth and, hey, did you see Keith's Facebook page? There's a message from Bill Thomas. And so... Uh, thankfully, they accepted my message in the spirit it was intended. And even though we'd had nothing publicly whatsoever to do with anybody involved in the case for 23 years, they were very gracious. And so then over the next couple of days, I began a back and forth with Joyce and Chris. And they were wonderful, and they were really excited to hear from me. And as it turns out, and I have to give the Colin Haley family credit— to my knowledge, this is almost ten years ago now. they were the first family anywhere to use social media in an effort to move forward an unsolved murder case Wow you know this it 's not that long ago it 's you know nine going on ten years ago, but they had they even, the, the reason why the page had that funny name was back then facebook wouldn 't let you mention murder or killing or anything like that. So which, which is why it had the funny title, whatever happened to, it still exists. Um, and over the next couple of days, I began a first an email and then a phone conference relationship with the calls and they were absolutely wonderful. They were very different, had a very different background than we did. Um, you know, here's my family in the Navy family, lived all over the country. I've never lived in Virginia. They're you know long standing Virginia family, you know, uh, we come at this from very different places, but they were so welcoming, and so we ended up with all these back and forth phone calls. And then at some point when I sort of cooled my jets a little bit about my anger about the crime scene photos, I actually said to Chris and Joyce, I said, "You know, I think we could leverage the FBI's embarrassment about the crime scene photos, which was really obvious from watching those interviews." I think we could leverage the FBI's embarrassment into forcing, that's the word I used, forcing the FBI to put resources back into the Colonial Parkway murders. And they loved the idea. I'm not saying it was a genius idea, but they responded positively. And so we began um, sort of strategizing together about how we might be able to push the case forward. Mm
1: -hmm. Wow. That's impressive.
2: (laughs) Well, I'll admit this. uh, The FBI knows this. I then we reached out to the other families, and I introduced myself and got over my embarrassment about our lack of involvement. But people were very kind and very responsive, and the FBI knows this. I, I then developed talking points and coached the other families on how to be effective spokespeople, and we all kind of got over our, our anger, but we used the FBI's embarrassment—they're the ones that lost the crime scene photos— We started hammering the crap out of them in interviews about how upset we were and how outrageous this was and why has this case been allowed to drag on for anywhere from 20 to 23 years, depending on which of the double homicides you were talking about. And we just started just hammering on them in in interviews. And lo and behold, they started to respond.
1: That's interesting. I had a question from when you started the story. You said you started uh, reading about it and then you went to the YouTube videos. Did this all happen in one night?
2: It's all happened in one night between okay. 7 and 7:30 and about midnight. Because I remember walking home at at midnight and I hadn't had dinner and I was just exhausted and still really upset. But yeah, it all that all that, that initial read happened all Which in one night. all in one sitting. And the reach and the initial outreach to the calls yeah. Uh, via their Facebook page, all happened that first night.
1: And did you take anything from your previous uh, career as a TV, uh, you know what I mean, like uh, <laughs> that, did you say this is, how, this is what we have to do, because you just said it wasn't it was it wasn't maybe a brilliant idea, but you know what, Other people don't have those types of ideas,
2: typically. Well, I mean, there's one thing that's true about the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and I know they're listening, so hello, everybody. Um, They've been listening to they, us for years. They are obsessed with their own image. And I said, remember saying this to the Call family. We used to watch a show when I was a kid called the FBI every Sunday night with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. Um, my family would watch the show religiously. And then later on in my dad's Navy career, I actually met a few FBI agents. One thing that was pretty clear, though, from everything I'd ever read about them and heard about them, they're obsessed with their own image. And they have a very high opinion of themselves. And they were not very happy about how they'd screwed up the Colonial Parkway murders, crime scene, yeah. photos, and the leak. So I, I thought to myself, let's work that. And we did. And it, all of a sudden, they started paying attention. And our phone calls started getting returned. And they, they actually asked me um, in about, by about November... They actually called me and actually said, we we need you to stop. Really? Yeah, we need you to stop criticizing us.
1: Like November of last year?
2: No, November of that same year, 2009. By November oh, oh. of 2009, I had sent them a letter with a list of all the items from my sister Kathy's uh, autopsy, which was from 23 years before, asking them what the status was of advanced forensic testing. Well done, yeah. On, and, and, you know, this all seems so backwards to me. Why is the brother of the murder victim sending a letter to the Federal Bureau of Investigation asking them for the, a status report on the following items, which your agent signed for at my sister's autopsy on, you know, October 13th, 1986? But, you know, I had a copy of her autopsy report. I asked my parents for it. And I saw these items and I said, well, you know, forensics, and this is, 10 years ago now. Forensics has advanced quite a bit. I wonder what the status is of all of these items. And so I sent them a list and I wanted to know, like, where are we with this? And so I continued to criticize them. Then it came out that they had, um, around that same time frame, I learned from a law enforcement source that they had thrown away the rape kits from my sister and Rebecca Dowski. they had discarded them as medical waste 8 years after the murders did and they at least save the dna nope they what? well didn't they didn't know what that was no to be fair they may have had a dna profile uh, okay uh, but uh, and re- but also think about this in 1986 to 89 when these murders take place the F- the to be fair to the fbi dna hadn't really come out of the lab at that point it wasn't really used for law enforcement purposes no it was yeah. like
1: it was like almost science fiction yeah
2: then. it's like early stage yeah uh, so a story came, you know. So a story ran in Virginia media where I strongly criticized the FBI. They literally threw away my sister and Rebecca Dowski's rape kit. They had them burned as medical waste in a bureaucratic screw up, driven by FBI arrogance, to be frank. And without getting into all those details, by late November two thousand nine, the same fall, the special agent in charge, this guy I really liked. Um, named Alex J. Turner. He actually called me up and he said, enough, we get it. We hear you. So in January 2010, so just you know, a month or two later, the FBI took what I'm told is in a very unusual step. They flew in at FBI expense the families from around the country and put us up and then met with us for five or six hours to brief us on the status of the Colonial Parkway murders investigation to apologize personally for losing the crime scene photos. They, and then they kind of laid out a roadmap for moving the case forward. And people tell me this is just not done. But they were reacting to the family outrage and the fact that we were all so upset. So they met with all four of the FBI families Remember, there's eight mm-hmm. families altogether, but two double homicides are Virginia State police cases. And this was our first opportunity to meet as a group. And so the night before, my family took Lamal out to dinner. And it was a very interesting dinner. to am sure. You That's meet, nice. Yeah. Meeting people that you've never met before, but whose loved ones may have died under a you know, potential serial killer. And actually, we had five of the eight families attend that dinner. But it was a very, you know, interesting and emotional evening. As a very uh, poetic man once said,
0: you're part of a club that no one wants to be a part of.
2: Yeah, I remember when I met John Walsh. Yeah. uh, And I had a chance to speak with him. And he said about this case, he said, the more I learn about your sister's case, Bill, the more I'm reminded of Adam, their son's case, with the discarded evidence and problems you know, which led to complications for the Walsh family. How did the FBI lose the crime scene photos? Well, the story they told us, and there may be some spin mixed in here, but the FBI said to us at that January 2010 meeting um, that a non-agent, this was a big deal to them, a non-agent FBI photographer had retired, and he had worked in the norfolk slash newport news offices there's two offices there and when he retired he took the crime scene photos with him they had probably started out life they were clearly shot by different photographers some were color and some were black and white these were extremely graphic i mean like you would not want to see photos of dead bodies and autopsies and crime scenes and whatnot he had taken them with him without authorization, and he was using them uh, at a new job that he had. He was teaching at a, um, uh, a training academy that taught private investigators and security guards. And this local deputy sheriff, Fred Atwell, who's since passed on, um, Fred Atwell had been asked if he would be interested in coming in to speak about the Colonial Parkway murders because he'd been a deputy sheriff for Gloucester County, Virginia, in that area, during that time. And he said, I never worked that case, but I'm aware of it. Everybody in the area knows the case. And he said no. And then his friend who was asking him to come in as a guest lecturer had sort of tried to tempt him and said, well, you know, we have the crime scene photos. Now, Atwell supposedly said that he thought this was outrageous and what if that was your kid sister, he said, quoting himself later. Uh, Atwell was a con man, literally a con man.
1: Yeah, didn't he was he got into trouble, he was arrested for He'd, robbery and he, he did. Didn't he say that because he had alerted people to the theft of the of the photos that he was now considered a suspect? Wasn't he, he
2: considered a su- suspect? He, he was, and some people still think that he could have been involved. Atwell sadly died last December and I never had a chance. He was actually in prison. He'd actually gotten in trouble. For defrauding some of the other Colonial Parkway murders families and was incarcerated. Um, this is a very interesting story in and of itself. Atwell started out life as a criminal. Then he was literally pardoned by the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, became a cop, and was a deputy sheriff for the Gloucester County, Virginia uh, Sheriff's Department. And then ultimately, after retiring sort of crossed back over, or maybe he never left, the dark side, and he actually was nailed for trying to defraud some of the other Colonial Parkway murders families in a car raffle that they were using to raise funds um, to investigate the Colonial Parkway murders. So he's a very strange guy. I'm very saddened about his death, mostly, I'll say, for selfish reasons, because I was always hoping that I could um, sit down with Fred uh, at this... Uh, you know, high security facility out in the western part of Virginia. I was always hoping that I could meet with Fred Atwell, and and unfortunately, fate has intervened, uh, and he he died just a couple of months ago, and so we will never have a chance to have that conversation.
0: Is it your personal opinion that he might have had some involvement, or no? Mm,
2: I don't think that Fred Atwell necessarily had anything to do with the Colonial Parkway murders, but that being said... I always thought that he knew something that he wasn't telling us. I talked to this guy dozens and dozens of times over the phone, and he would call me sometimes multiple times a week, you know, in that 2010, 2011 time frame after the crime scene photo story broke. And he hated the FBI, and they weren't crazy about him either, and he really kind of had it in for them. But I always thought there was like an, an undercurrent, a thread that he knew something... Particularly about the Call and Haley disappearance, he was a family friend of the Call family oh. of Richard Call, the father. Yeah, yeah. and um, I always thought he knew something. So he was just so, coincidentally a family friend. Uh, yeah, and and uh, and you know he he inserted himself as sometimes people do. He inserted himself into the Colonial Parkway murders investigation. I'm always left with, the, with the, the sense that Fred Atwell might know something more about the Colonial Parkway murders. I never thought he, he was necessarily directly involved. Yeah. But he did run with a group of officers, one or two of whom have, are on the short list of suspects in the Colonial Parkway murders. So I always thought there was a possibility that At- Atwell knew more than he told us
1: does that link at all to the speculation from private detective Steve Spingola that there were more than one murderer and maybe it could have been because now we're, and we're talking about the profile of it being law enforcement or somebody impersonating law enforcement in order to, um, in order to approach these, these victims and could it be possible with Atwell, maybe, maybe an associate of his, maybe some sort of sick syndicate.
2: It does. Steve Spingola was, was suspicious um, of the, and, and thought there was a potential for law enforcement involvement. Steve Spingola, by the way, is the same. Uh, he's a wonderful detective and a really good guy uh, from Milwaukee, a longtime homicide detective. And um, your listeners might know Steve Spingola um, from, from his appearances in, in television with uh, Kelly Siegler. Um, yes. On her- Cold Justice. Uh, on Cold Justice. He's one of her investigators, really a, a fantastic investigator and a really good guy. And he, he had come down to Virginia and we paid his expenses, which were so incredibly modest. He and a partner, Mike Grogan, had come down and, and for a week and had investigated the Colonial Parkway murders. This is one of the reasons why we were doing some fundraising, was to cover expenses like having someone uh, prominent like Steve uh, come down. And he wrote up a report uh, on the case, which actually is available on Amazon if anybody ever wanted to buy it. Um, and actually, it's Steve Spingola is one of the investigators who feels that there's a fifth double homicide in Virginia that could potentially be related, which is a 1996 murder of another lesbian couple, Julie Williams and Lolly Winans, who were killed up in the Shenandoah National Park. So this would be, you know, 10 years after Kathy and Becky were killed. Uh, they were, Kathy and Becky were killed in October 1986, and Julie and Lolly were killed up in Shenandoah National Park. And it's also in Virginia. It's also a national park. It's about 180 miles away, so it's not like right next door. But um, they were killed under what the FBI said were substantially similar circumstances.
1: Well, does that ever cross your mind that the killer went dormant for a little while and then started again 10 years later in the same pattern that, that they began with your sister? In a, almost like almost like a like a rageish type hate crime,
2: uh, it's definitely a possibility. And then there are these weird coincidences. And again, I don't mean to say that anybody is a murderer, but there are four National Park Service rangers who were working at the Colonial National Park in 1986, who were then working at the Shenandoah National Park in 1996, ten years later. Um, so. That in itself is odd. And then one of them was a person of interest in Kathy and Becky's murder. Whoa. And was, uh, and I always said this is very strange and I've never gotten an adequate explanation for why this happened. This particular ranger was a suspect in Kathy and Becky's murder and yet was permitted to be one of the lead investigators in what the FBI said publicly was a substantially similar murder. In 1996. And again, I don't mean to say that this man is a murderer. I just find it very strange and unacceptable that this investigative ranger was permitted to be a participant in a similar case 10 years later.
1: That he was a suspect
2: in. He was a suspect or a person of interest, is the term of art. Okay. He was even given a polygraph test in, in the Colonial Parkway murders, specifically Kathy and Becky's case. And why is this guy, of all the, you know available National Park Service investigative rangers, why is he allowed to be up to his hips in investigating the murder of Julie Williams and Lolly Winans, another lesbian couple killed in a national park, outdoorsy. Lesbian couple. The park that he worked in. Throat slashed, bound. Tell me this isn't starting to sound familiar. Holiday weekend, just like Kathy and Becky. A three-day holiday weekend. Kathy and Becky were killed over Columbus Day weekend. Julie and Lolly were killed over Memorial Day weekend. Again, I'm not saying it It makes him a murderer, but I think it goes to poor judgment, at a minimum, that this guy was permitted to be involved in the investigation. Of what the FBI said publicly was a substantially similar murder.
0: Yeah, who permitted him?
2: Him? Well, these are the kind of things where I ask these questions and nobody can give me a good answer. Right.
0: I mean, it just sounds like it was him because he was probably one of the first people to see the car. I guess being well, you know, working there. Yes. W- what else about this guy? Is this uh, is this the lead
2: like uh, one of the leading POIs in your mind? Well, he's on the sh- probably on it's the short be, right? list. Yeah. He he ended up actually getting into substantial trouble again while working for the National Park Service out uh, in Arizona at the Grand Canyon National Park. he was involved in another botched uh, investigation what? out out there. And there were there's actually a book, um, The Case of the Indian Trader, um, which is all about that botched investigation by um, a guy named Paul Berkowitz and Berkowitz, said to me, I'm not saying this guy is a murderer, but I am saying this guy is a bad cop. And he likened him, in a private conversation with me, he likened this investigator to a a firefighter fire who sets fires only, only to, to pull put them in out. and put them out and play the hero, that he was that kind of cop. Uh, again, I'm not saying it makes him a murderer, but he, he's certainly a credible choice. But there are there are other people that are... That are credible choices. It's funny, as we were talking about um, off camera here, off mic, there are highly viable suspects for the murder series that we call the Colonial Parkway murders. And then there are also individuals who I think are viable for particular murders that might mean that some or all of the Colonial Parkway murders are independent events. And this guy is is certainly, you know, on that list. Is uh the man Daryl Rice on that list for you? He's not for me. Um Daryl David Rice, uh, we can talk about him publicly because he was charged, was charged by the FBI for the murder of Julie Williams and Lolly Winans. That murder happened in ninety six, so some several years later he was charged and they were Unable to prove that Daryl David Rice was the killer of Julie Williams and Lolly Winans.
1: How were they unable to prove that?
2: It. I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole on the details, but the case fell apart at trial because of a, I think, a DNA cross contamination issue. They were there was unidentified DNA, which actually uh, was found, if I'm not mistaken, on uh, duct tape. That and they they weren't even actually able to a- ascertain at that time. What the source was, it could have even gone as far back as the factory where the duct tape was originally manufactured, but there was some sort of cross-contamination issue. They've never been able to prove that Daryl David Rice did kill Julie Williams and Lolly Wine, and that case remains unsolved. They did charge Daryl David Rice successfully for an attack on another woman, a, a bicyclist, if I'm remembering correctly, in The Shenandoah National Park, and this guy is far from a Boy Scout, and he did end up serving uh, several years for that assault. The woman, thankfully, did survive, but they've never been able to solve the Julie Williams-Lolly Winans murder. And when you look at the potential relationships of these cases, the Julie Williams-Lolly Winans murder feels the most like the murder of my sister, Kathy Thomas, and Rebecca Dowski— um, in terms of its parallels. It doesn't parallel the other Colonial Parkway murders that closely, but it's definitely a possibility.
0: Is it believed that the killer maybe drove the car afterwards as well in that one, the fifth one?
2: Uh, I don't think so in the Julie Williams-Lolly Winans murder. The, the car was found at a, in a parking area, um, and they were um, they were hiking um, and camping. Ah, Okay. Over that Memorial Day weekend,
1: but their circumstances of the murder were like shockingly similar.
2: they were very similar in terms of you know a, a lesbian couple, holiday weekend, national park bound with, gag bound bound gag, throats uh, slashed, um, so they felt that there were really a lot of similarities, but between not the sexually two. assaulted not that I'm aware of
1: it's it's incredible i mean i know we have a lot of unsolved murders in the country but just the initial similarities that you mentioned right in the beginning which is uh same sex couple over a holiday weekend hiking i mean that that that's enough i i think that's enough in my head to at least sound off some sort of alarm that oh this might be some some somewhat similar
2: sure it's remarkable
1: to me that they would have an investigator Look into anything that, like I don't even know who they they would be, but the the same guy who was questioned and given a polygraph.
2: I, I agree. I, I think it's very strange. Like, uh, is
1: is it really like that coincidental?
2: I, I don't know. It's funny. I, I I met a couple of months ago now with a. Re- reporter, a very fine writer named Kate Miles, and she's working on a book on the Julie Williams Lolly Winans murder. And I remember when she called me and introduced herself, I was so thrilled that someone was doing uh, an in-depth story uh, about the Julie Williams Lolly Winans murder, because first of all, they remind me of Kathy and Becky, you know, young, yeah. uh, same-sex couple with so much potential and, you know, all of it unrealized. And uh, when she called me, I was just, we had some difficulty connecting, just scheduling issues. We were moving from uh, Los Angeles to the East Coast. And and so I was a little hard to find and was missing some emails, you know, that kind of thing. And I remember, you know, just trying to get back to her and then running into some, I don't know, Gmail glitch or something. And uh, I, I just felt really... Compelled to, I had to keep trying to get a hold of Kate Miles because I was so um, thrilled that someone was actually doing a book on a on a case that I think is is sadly overlooked. And we've had a chance to connect, and um, but it's funny she and I have talked about this stuff for hours. She thinks there's a possibility this could be related. So as we talked about in in the previous segment, the. There may be relationships between some of these murders, but maybe, like I said, it's not a straight one, two, three, four, or one, two, three, four, five, you know, straight linear relationship. Maybe there are links between these cases, but it might not be just quite so straightforward.
1: Sure sure and especially with some advancements in technology and dna if anybody was in that circle of those advancements like somebody who's close to law enforcement or close to um you know the uh, the media or science or something like that the timing of it seems pretty interesting if if the 1996 murders were connected That's right around the same time where DNA became pretty prevalent with the O.J. Simpson trial, and everyone started using that to exonerate people and to convict people. So if they were in that circle of knowledge that this particular uh, device and and method is growing— then it would make sense that there hasn't been anything since. If they were so, I don't know, they had the wherewithal to to stop for 10 years or be very careful for 10 years, and then they get the urge and the opportunity and they do it, and then they think, ooh, this isn't the right time to do it because maybe maybe I can't get away with it the way I got away with it in the 80s.
2: Yeah, it's true. I mean, I've also tried to take some comfort. You know, it's been 32 years, and that can wear on you sometimes. But- yeah. Um, I also have tried to take comfort and you know, over the years, I've talked to a lot of other family members from other solved and unsolved cases. and I'm hoping that the science, the forensics, might be beginning to catch up. And so if, and this is very important, it isn't like this is automatically happening. I'm here to tell you that you have to push law enforcement respectfully to get them to put resources. I I think, people tell me that Colonial Parkway murders is a solvable case. I'm talking about experts, forensic experts. But these things just don't happen automatically. We have 200,000 cold case murders in the United States currently. Um, We have... uh, It's all about time, attention, and resources. There's a reason why cold cases go cold. Yeah. And, you know, the truth is I'm here to tell you that uh, families and friends have to push, and you have to lobby and cajole and beg and plead um, and just keep pushing to get your case the attention that it deserves. Terrible stuff will happen today, which I understand, Will require law enforcement attention, and I'm not implying that our 32-year-old case is more important than theirs. It's far from it. But at the same time, if we don't put some time, attention, and resources back into these cold cases, they're all going to go cold.
1: What about some developments or any sort of um, moments in the investigation or in the in the in the case? Have stood out to you. One that I want to ask you about is this note that was found. This this note about a. a, a I'll let you go into that.
2: Yeah, the, in, when Steve Spingola was doing his inquiry for us, one of the things that uh, that uh, seemed to um, be new information to us was in case number four in the Colonial Parkway murders, it Daniel Lauer and Anna Maria Phelps. Um, the a note. Seem was found in some personal effects that had belonged to them. You know, as you might f- figure, sometimes when you get back items that belong to the the victim, the family members, particularly parents, will f- can find that very difficult to be forced to go through those things. And so, apparently, a note was found which seemed to indicate that Anna and Daniel might be meeting someone on I-64, perhaps at that rest stop, and that might indicate, you know, a, a meeting of some sort, which could have been, and I, you know, I'm not passing any judgment here, could have actually referenced a low-level drug deal, like in other words, a pot deal. Um, Daniel was returning to Virginia Beach, as we talked about in the previous segment, and he had six to $800 in cash on him, which is a lot of money back in 1989, I still feel good about having six eight hundred dollars. I wish I had that right now in my pocket too, um, here in two thousand nineteen, and um, that money did disappear. Um, but it's possible they may have wanted to meet somebody to perhaps buy some pot. They, you know, these are young people living on their own for the first time, and maybe uh, there was a, a meeting set up. Again, I'm not talking about some you know high level, you know drug deal with bales of marijuana or anything. But Steve Spengola. And, and the family discovered this. The Virginia State Police maintained that they knew about this note all along. I'm not sure about that, respectfully. I, I think this might have been new information. And that might highlight, for example, in that double homicide, that it could be an independent event. These days, I've gone back and forth on this, my personal pendulum. Are the Colonial Parkway murders related or are they not related? Right now, these days, having talked to a lot of experts... Um and gotten their input, um, I'm kind of in the these might be independent events category again, I, and I've been in both. yeah. When I met with the FBI a couple of years ago, they made a very compelling case for why they thought they they were related because of the proximity, et cetera and and the parallels between the cases. And then lately, I've kind of been in a different place after talking to different experts.
1: It's tough to look at and say that they're not related just at, at on the surface, just based on the um, the time, the duration between them all. It it Doesn't it feel like sort of rhythmic to you?
2: It does. I mean, three of the four murders are in the fall. They're all in the same back-to-school time frame in the Colonial Parkway murders. They're all, three of the four of them are in the same six-week back-to-school Labor Day to Columbus Day time frame. The only one that breaks that pattern are the missing couple, number three, Keith Collins, and Cassandra Haley, they go missing in April. The, the other three are all, like, right in the same time frame. And then, of course, the, the parallels that we talked about earlier, you know, you can make a pretty, pretty strong case for they sure feel similar, but then, you know, as we probe additional potential suspects, and there are other people that are quite credible but I think they're only credible for one murder or perhaps two.
0: Yeah, I think they do feel similar, and I would not be surprised at all if some were connected, but I also would not be surprised if were, there were some one-offs involved here as well. Sure, yeah. Absolutely, and I would say particularly the, the fourth couple, Anna-Marie and uh, Daniel, seem the, the least like the rest to me.
2: Yeah, and there's one thing that's very striking about that one, for example, the the discovery of the blanket. Uh, covering the bodies. The investigators have told me they think that might indicate remorse. They are laid out side by side in the woods and then covered with a blanket from Daniel's car. That's really unusual in terms of the way the other bodies were were disposed of i hope that doesn't sound too harsh
1: no no it feels like there's a lot of rage in the other ones like with the with the shooting obviously he's running away so the killer finishes him off with another shot to the head sorry that's just how i'm picturing it he was running and he got hit in the shoulder and then caught up and shot him in the head with your sister with the the two 10 years later there's a lot of it just feels like a lot of rage and this is while it's Proximity-wise, very, very uh, relatable. Yeah, putting them side by side and covering them with a blanket feels off.
2: It does, and then of course in the other examples, wallets and and purses
1: and everything. Purses yeah. and
2: mo- money is there. You know, there's money and and driver's licenses. So it, the the La- the Phelps Lauer murder feels different to me, and also. Where's the six or eight hundred dollars? Yeah, so Daniel... robbery was a motive. Yeah, there, it seems Daniel had um, done a bunch of painting jobs, painting houses with his dad over the summer, and then you know his dad had collected the money from the neighbors or whomever that owed the money for the painting work, and so he had one of the reasons he'd gone home was in addition to get getting some clothing was his dad was going to give him that money that that he'd earned over the summer. And uh, and that money's nowhere to be found. And and it, as I said, it's not it's not a fortune, but it's not there either. Right. right.
1: Yeah. I, I just want to get back to that note really quickly. Sure. I don't know if uh, you mentioned this. That note was written by Annabelle Phelps.
2: Yes. my rec- I'm saying this off the top of my head, but yeah, my recollection is that she referenced that they were going to be meeting a, a particular person at, at a particular place. And I think that, Highlights the fact that that individual should be looked at again. Uh, I know he was looked at by the Virginia State Police, but I'm not certain he was ever cleared. At least, to, to not certainly not to the family's satisfaction. So
1: she names this person in the letter. We're meeting so and so at yeah. this rest stop.
2: Yeah, and and I think there's, they're meeting two so and so's. Were they friends? Or uh, they were friends. Oh, were they and... friends
1: of both uh, Daniel and her? Was it the fiance? Complaint? Yeah, boyfriend. Boyfriend.
2: Boyfriend. Heading towards fiance is my understanding. Yeah, and um, they, they, the FBI. I'm sorry, the Virginia State Police is responsible here. They took a hard look at this guy, um, and I think they considered him a likely suspect. But they've never, they've never taken any steps. I mean, in this entire sequence of murders, we haven't had a single arrest. Yeah. In the Colonial Parkway murders.
0: I, I'm just so confused about lack of DNA evidence, too. And, uh, you know, I think, I think with some advances in technology, as we were talking about uh, off-camera here, about the MVAC and uh, things like that, there's got to be some DNA there that can connect these, that can be uploaded to familial DNA sites. Right. Like, where is... What's going ca- on with that? Where is the car...
2: Well, the your car, sister's the, car. The cars are sadly long gone. In in these examples, uh, this is very striking to me. The Kathy's car it was was uh, scrapped. Ultimately, they did save interior panels and mm-hmm. and um, like uh, seat cushions, carpets, and, and it, okay. you know, I, I've never seen this stuff. M
1: it. Yeah, yeah exactly. well,
2: that's what we said. Yeah. When, you know, when we met w- with Jared Bradley from MBAC, I was really impressed with with MBAC technology and Jared Bradley as a person. Yeah. who's a, you a know, very committed guy with a great team, and I'm thrilled that the FBI is using MBAC now um, at their lab in Quantico. But, I mean, to me, this is exactly the kind of testing that that should be going on. On the forensic side, um, uh, testing for forensic genealogy. We've been lobbying the FBI and the Virginia State Police to please move forward. When I'm so thrilled for the Golden State Killer uh, families, the sister survivors, um, you know, you, you it's and now we have nearly 60 cases over the last year that have been broken using forensic genealogy, and we believe we have DNA in three of our four crime scenes here my understanding is that the DNA may be very limited in one of our crime scenes but and now we're getting some resistance in this case from the Virginia State Police they're concerned that the DNA testing might consume the last of a very small sample which I understand I really do and and we we're pulling for the success of the investigators and the lab technicians and, and everyone but at the same time you know I've talked to the family directly about this and they said well, even if it does use up the last of the available DNA, we've been waiting it? now. For what is it doing in the <laughs> meantime? Yeah, yeah we've been waiting for, for 30 years. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I mean, I'll personalize this a little bit. You know, my parents have both died now waiting to find out who killed our kid's sister. Um, what are we waiting for? Yeah, it's not we, fair. we understand that, you know, The Virginia State Police might feel like, well, we only have one shot. But I've talked to the family. Their attitude is, we're willing to take the shot. And if that means we use the last of the DNA, then let's use the last of the DNA. And
0: we've talked to Jared Bradley of MVAC, who says that most of the samples that they're able to get have come from previously tested items that were not able to get uh, evidence from swabs. So I'm... Pretty confident that if they bring the MVAC in and sample all these, they will absolutely come up with new samples. I don't know how many or whatnot, but I guarantee something different there. Sure. It's incredible that
1: they're using that excuse because, like we just said, what, what would it be doing in the meantime, just sitting there?
2: Sitting in a lab.
1: There's the MVAC that is not the Hail Mary of this case. It's almost like a handoff with no defense. Like that's a Statue is, of Liberty play. That is what you're waiting Hook for. Hook and ladder. Hook and ladder. That is what it. There is no defense on this. Yeah, like it's presenting itself no, to the no, FBI and, right now. It's right and, there. And, like what? What more? Other than some. Apparition coming up out of the evidence and saying, hi, this is who I like, yeah. like a psychic nailing on something.
0: Jurisdiction, um our grievances, like get over it.
1: Anything beyond NVAC right now, I can't wrap my head around because I'm thinking it's science fiction. I'm thinking that it's written by like Lovecraft. You got or us something. all
0: fired up, Bill. Lancey well, Grace is in the studio.
2: <laughs> well, and, and, you know, look. Even just in this conversation, guys, I've had my criticisms of law enforcement, and uh, but mostly my criticisms are of the pace of the investigation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I've said to the FBI and the Virginia State Police, if it's money, we'll find a way to raise it. You know, the eight families, we're not made of money, but we'll find a way, you know, to raise the funds. And they were like, no, that's not it. And so, but there's there's all these, there's always a roadblock. There's always yeah. a reason. And uh, I'm thrilled it came out uh, a few months ago um, in BuzzFeed and then the, the New York Times confirmed it that the, the FBI now has quietly set up a forensic genealogy uh, team. Great. Uh, led by Steve Kramer out of the Los Angeles office. And um, if I'm outing him, so be it. But it was in the New York Times, so I can't be the first. Um, but I'm thrilled that they're getting into this. And y- you know, as we talked about a few minutes ago, I, I, I get the fact that all of this work can't take place in public. We're very frustrated now because the FBI has frozen the families out for a year and a half. Mm. They've refused to speak to me or any of the other Colonial Parkway murders families because I dared a year and a half ago, mind you, to criticize the pace of this investigation. And they don't take criticism particularly well. And I'd be happy to talk to Mr. Ray, Christopher Ray, the head of the FBI, at any point. I think he has my number. Well, if he
1: doesn't have your number, it's pretty easy to find.
2: (laughs) Thank you. Um, But, you know, being frozen out by the FBI, I used to talk to our FBI agent at least once a week. And she has not been permitted to return my calls for 18 months. They refused to talk to any of the other Colonial Parkway murders families because Bill Thomas dared criticize The pace of this investigation. Well, I'm feeling some urgency here. My father died two months ago, not knowing who killed his only daughter. My mom died 17 years ago, truly uh, with a broken heart. You know, she lost her only daughter, her youngest child, and her her only girl, a closest friend. I mean, uh, you know the. My mom and my sister were unbelievably close. There's this sad pantheon in a case like ours that's dragged on for so long. Now what you find is here you are, you're talking to the older brother of the murder victim. If you talk to the Call family, you're talking to Joyce Call, the older sister uh, of Keith. Uh, Why? Because our parents have died waiting for answers in this case. You know, as we talked about Fred Atwell, the disgraced deputy sheriff, who was also the whistleblower here and potential suspect, he just died. Um, Because these cases drag on for so long, we're losing witnesses. We're losing family members. I mean, what seems to be lacking here from our perspective, and I mean this all the way down to my toes, is we don't feel like there's a sense of urgency.
1: Can I ask you how you learned of your sister's death?
2: Yeah, my um, Kathy and Becky went missing on a Thursday night. Their bodies were discovered on a Sunday. My recollection is that my parents called me at my apartment. I was living in Philadelphia then. I was working for RCA Video. The phone rang. It was both my mom and dad, uh, which is a little unusual to get them both at the same time. But, you know, we're real close, you know, Irish Catholic family from Boston. Um, So for me to talk to my parents... You know, probably once a week was not unusual, and lots of teasing and good-natured family banter and all that stuff. But none of that was evident on this phone call. As soon as I picked up, it was both my mom and my dad, and my dad's tone was so serious, and which is again, you know, unusual. It's a pretty loving, upbeat relationship, and he said, "Are you sitting down?" And I, I just thought. Well, no, I'm not sitting down. You know, I just walked over, answer the phone. This is back, you know, in the landline era, folks. And my dad did most of the talking, and he was super serious. And uh, he told me that my sister, Kathy, had been found, along with her new girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski, and their car had been found alongside the Colonial Parkway. I had no idea what the Colonial Parkway was. You know, I knew Williamsburg. Um, and that their bodies were found on federal property, and this was going to be an FBI case because they were found on federal property. And my dad did his best to um, give me an update about what was going on uh, with the case in terms of what we knew in the very early stages. And um, it occurred to me years later that my father and mother had to make that same phone call three times in a row. You know, my older brother Richard, then me, and my brother Jack and deliver the same awful news three times in a row um and I, you know in that same phone call you know I made plans to come home to Lowell outside Boston and um you know meet up and you know then there were a series of phone calls that you know that were made regarding you know kind of logistics and that kind of thing um my older brother Richard ended up, who's a Navy doctor at that time, he ended up flying from Hawaii, where he was stationed, to uh, Norfolk, Virginia. And then while we headed north up to my parents' house, um, so I remember I, I drove the next morning, I think, from Philadelphia to New York to pick up my brother Jack. It's funny, then I, I spent the day with him and we spent the night at his. Apartment and then drove up the next day up to Massachusetts. And then my older brother, Richard, you know, the oldest, who talk about an awful task. My parents were so devastated, they were not in a position to fly down to Norfolk to identify Kathy's body. And so my older brother, Richard, had to do that. And it's still, I mean, he was a guy who's a doctor, who's, you know, was in the Navy and took care of Navy and Marine Corps personnel, including people that had been shot and crashed in helicopters and who knows what and he still has difficulty talking about it it was it was something i don't think i could have done
1: i can't imagine that's that is a, uh, that, is a that is it's in i it's indescribable for anybody who's like to um personalize that is for anyone
2: who hasn't experienced that it was like I couldn't yeah. even imagine. Yeah, I, you know, I've talked about this where I get the most emotional, which I, I am. I am sorry, I am now. Um, is the uh, when people and I brought it up, so you guys are off the hook. But uh, w- talking about the uh, um, the experience from my parents' mm. point of view, and now they're both gone. Um, but the the I think the worst part of this entire experience was the gr- the grieving process, and then seeing your own grief magnified in your family in your family's eyes it was really really difficult i and it's funny i know we were talking about this off, off mic a little bit i can almost always kind of put myself in the place of of someone else who's yeah. you know had this kind of experience i might not always agree with everything they say or what they think or whatever but i can kind of get a pretty decent sense of of where they're coming from
1: well i think it's important to talk about the emotion and the the details of the day that you found out and you talking about your parents and seeing the grief reflected in your in your siblings and in your parents. I think it's important to remember those details because that's what keeps you going on on this. Yeah. And, you know, and, yeah. and you're not filled like we, you know, we'll 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 probably crack a joke in like two minutes and. Because you have a well-balanced sense of yourself, I you know unless you're unless you're completely fooling us, but I think it's important to identify the the grief and you know your anger and with with all elements of this case, whether they're related or not related.
2: Oh sure, and then you know it's also important for me, in, you know, and Kathy would you know clap me upside the head, you know, if I didn't remember to laugh and and be joyful. Yeah. And there's a lot of um uh a lot of things that all of us I think have to be um, you know have have to be joyful about. And as we talked about earlier today when we were, you know, shooting the breeze uh off mic, you know, I think it's important that we have that have that balance. And you know, at the same time, you know, I've seen this case and the losses in this case destroy people. We've lost loved ones along the way that just were not prepared to to deal with this you know for whatever reason this is a really difficult you know burden to bear my mom was very you know sort of Irish and a bit tragic um probably read too much James Joyce in college but you know she said the, the thing that bothered her about losing Kathy was it was out of the natural order of things you know the idea is that you know you're supposed to grow old and, and, and that your, you know, your grandparents should go first and then your parents and then you, and that's the way, that's the natural cycle, which is, that's hard enough for all of us to bear, you know, losing loved ones. But when it happens out of sequence, you know, Kathy Thomas was 27 years old. Um, Rebecca Dowski was 21. Um, uh, Robin Edwards was 14. 14. Very, very young. These are all amazing young people with so much potential, and we've just, you know, we've snuffed that out. Kathy Thomas would be, I think, 60 years old now. And, and you know, I watch all these amazing women um, uh, and the accomplishments, and I'm, I'm thrilled to see how much the world has changed. But, you know, Kathy's friends from the Navy and from the Naval Academy have said, you know, Kathy Thomas could have been... uh Senator, a Congressperson, or the CEO of a company—you um, know, she could have been literally could have been anything. She was the best, you know, my family had to offer.
1: Do you think that you will figure out who murdered your sister?
2: I do. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I've taken to saying, when we solve the Colonial Parkway murders, yeah. and we will, and experts tell me this is a solvable case. Uh, My intention, actually, is to pivot to the larger issue of why are there 200,000 cold case murders in the United States? Why do murders go cold? We need, we as a country, I mean the big we, need to put more resources into law enforcement. Law enforcement doesn't have anywhere near the tools they need to uh, to solve these cases. But we have 200,000 cold case murders to solve. We have at least... Two, and I hear some estimates as high as 400,000 untested rape kits sitting on law enforcement shelves. And, you know, folks, if you're paying attention, you know, understand that not all of those are serial cases, but some of them are. And certainly, you know, we've seen, you know, any number of cases solved now. And if you think to yourself, if we had been able to catch these perpetrators at an earlier stage and stop them... We would be saving lives and saving money. I've even seen analysis that says that um, we would actually, if you just want to be completely dollars and cents focused about this, which some of my uh, friends in Congress might like, you know, they're very thrifty about spending our money, and I'm a taxpayer too, um, we'd actually save money in the long run if we stopped serial perpetrators, be they rapists, murderers, or what have you, um, from Offending over and over again. Um, I don't think this is a political issue at all. I just think this is a matter of do we have the will um, to work together to, you know, solve you know these these kind of societal ills. And my intention actually is when we solve the Colonial Parkway murders, is to pivot to that larger discussion because we've we've lived this for thirty something years.
1: Uh, whenever you're ready to have that discussion at that point there's always a uh, microphone waiting for you here in Wormtown.
2: well thanks in you in the palatial crawlspace studio <laughs> the
1: palatial and already i've forgotten the word you used com- when you came no com- we
2: no we, star- oh, we started out I, I said they were commodious commodious, commodious. that's right yes. <laughs> okay <Yes. laughs> palatial Commod- commodious they are they are they're large comfortable
0: the food is incredible. <laughs> well, Bill, you are scrumtulescent, and uh, thank you very much for joining us here. I just in think warm he's town. Neat. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we appreciate it, and we'll be hearing more from you soon with this case and others.: uh, Thanks and keep up the good work. Thank you. You too.